Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to a very special edition here beyond the cover with my uh, good friend and co-host Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how you doing? Doing good. Sorry it's been so long since we've been able to have a show. Yeah, we've had some family stuff going on and whatnot, but you know what? We are back, and we, this show is special for two reasons. Reason number one is it's our last show of 2017, and we're going to kick it off with the best bang we know how, because reason number two is we're having number one international best-selling, whatever you want to say, all over the planet, Earth best-selling author Dean Koontz, and we are extremely excited to be able to speak with him tonight. He is one of my favorite authors. It is a thrill, so I'm so glad he's willing to sit down and talk to us. Yes, so right when we get on here, I just want to let you know, of course, that every uh, all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books, so make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information. Now, um, of course, uh, you know, our author needs no introduction. He's the author of so many famous books and, uh, on Thomas's and the Frankenstein series and, and wonderful things. And he's decided, hey, in my career, let's do something else. Let's start a new series. And that's what he did when he brought out his book uh, a couple months ago. It was called The Silent Corner and features a new character that Dean's created called Jane Hawk. But now today, his latest book is out, book two in the series, called The Whispering Room. So without any further ado, Dean, thank you so much for joining us tonight. How are you doing, sir? Well, I'm doing well for three reasons. I had a very good dinner. I had half a bottle of wine, and I finished a book today. So uh, the day doesn't get any better than that, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That is the wow. super trifecta right there in the day. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So let's kind of get in. Like, like I just mentioned, um, you decided after all your career that, hey, let's start a new character. And so you decided to come out with Jane Hawk, and she came out in the silent corner. And today is book two, uh, The Whispering Room. So if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about The Whispering Room and Jane Hawk? And if you want to go back in the silent corner and maybe bring readers up to date, that would be great. Well, you know, I never sat down to create Jane Hawk. She just came to me. I had been working on something else, and I, I felt that my publisher and I weren't in sync, and this is no no hit on the publisher, just sometimes that happens. And uh, I wanted to go in a different direction than where we had been going. So I put that book aside, and I thought, I'm I'm just going to start something, and all I know is it's going to be this woman. She's going to be astonishing. She's going to be kind of based on women I've known, but she's an ex, or she is an FBI agent, and she's on leave, but she's about to go rogue. And I had no idea about anything else. I started the story that way. And sometimes that works, and sometimes you get to a point and say, well, I wonder what i got to do for a living besides this. But fortunately, this one... I got to a certain point, and I don't think it was very far in Silent Corner, that I fell in love with this character. And I've said it's fortunate for me. I've fallen in love twice in my life with a woman, and this one is fictional, so I don't need attorneys. Uh, but uh, she's she's just fabulous, and the more I write about her, the deeper she gets. And I just finished the fourth book in the series, and I'm 
I'm more ecstatic with it than any of the ones before. So I don't know where I'm going with her. I do know that the the opening of the series is a seven-book arc, and it, they're all sort of standalones. There is an overriding story, but someday we'll get to Jane where they're all just strictly standalones. But uh, I'm, I kind of think I'm going to be able to write about this woman for most of the rest of my life. Well, I'm going to try to prove 100 is the new 50, so I'm talking about quite a long time yet. But she just keeps getting deeper and more interesting. And I can't tell you, I didn't start out to conceive her. She conceived herself is basically it. She is arguably one of the strongest characters you've ever written. i, I got to tell you that right off the bat. Um, so I guess with what you've just said about her, you don't have an end game in mind for her. You don't have sort of like the last scene in your head, like when I'm finally done writing about her, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, well, no, I don't think I'm going to stop writing about her. I think I could take a break at some point, but not until these seven books are done. And, uh, you know, this strangest thing happened. I don't do outlines, but we, before the book, first book was published, we sold the film and TV rights to Paramount and anonymous content and a little time passed and they came and said, uh, could you do us a, an arc of what these seven books are and where they end up? And I said, well, I never write outlines. So this is kind of very strange, but I also knew why they were asking. I mean, we all know why they were asking. There's series like Lost and Twin Peaks that start out with great expectations and then you get to the end and it doesn't, nobody knows how to explain any of it. And I knew that I knew exactly where it was going in terms of the end point. Uh, so I was able to do it. But I said to him, uh, I'm not so sure that when I get to book five, six, and seven, it'll be quite like this outline. But uh, now they're turning out a little closer to that than I would have expected, although there's surprises, because when you've got a character that comes totally alive, there's endless surprises. And I'm not sure I just answered your question. I may have babbled. See that? Oh, no, no, problem. no. Um, That's the so problem with I, I having half reason, a bottle of wine instead of a full yeah. bottle. But go. <laughs> well, the reason the reason I was curious about that is because I'm thinking of Odd Thomas, where at the end of the first book you sort of telegraphed a point where you you kind of knew the the way it had to end. I guess does that make sense? Yeah, Odd Thomas. I always I didn't know how many books it would be, but uh, I always knew where it had to go. I when I finished the first book, I loved the character so much. My publisher at that time didn't get it. Uh, it was the first time I, in memory that I'd had a publisher who read the book and wouldn't talk to me about it because he disliked it so much. But by the second book, he got to understand it. And when I got to the end of the first, I thought, well. This guy's on a journey to absolute humility. He's a very humble guy in the beginning. He's a fry cook and everything else. But he's on this emotional, intellectual arc. And I know that at the end of it, he's it's going to be as close to a humble person, uh, totally, purely humble as it can get. My biggest problem was, how do I write that? Because I'm not a purely humble human being. Uh, so that was a challenge in its own. Jane Hawk is different. There is... No end to Jane in my mind because she's on this journey in these first seven books. And when she gets to the end of the seventh, this occurred to me recently as I was doing the fourth book. 
I realized Jane is going to triumph because she always triumphs. Uh, she may go through hell to get there, but she doesn't back down. So in the end of this seven books, she's going to succeed. And then I thought, given the story arc, and it's hard not, I don't want to give stuff away about what she's up against, but she's up against a conspiracy that is out to change the world in a really nasty way. And I thought when she succeeds at the end of this, she's going to be the most famous person in the world. How does that, how do I go from anywhere with that? And so I've spent the last couple of weeks, it's been in my mind, where does she go after that point? Because I don't want to stop with her. And I think I've got it. Uh, And it sort of comes out of the character and who she is. But uh, I just absolutely love this character. And I I don't think I'll ever tire of writing about her. I'll never push her over the falls, in other words. She she won't do a Sherlock. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like a Sherlock and Moriarty thing, huh? And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now you mentioned, you know, how how she kind of called to and she kind of created herself. Uh, And and all of a sudden, boom, then you go and you're right in the silent corner, and then you said the seven books, and you're all of a sudden right into it. Was she one of the first characters to kind of come to you that way? Uh, Thomas came that way. I was working on a novel called The Face, and I was really enjoying it, and right in the middle of it, uh, just into my head, like it was beamed, uh, came these, this line, my name is Odd Thomas, I lead an unusual life. And I thought, what the hell is that? Uh, but I wrote it down, and I had a yellow tablet beside me where I make notes to myself. They amount to things like, remember, idiot, you've got to change the color of that car. I mean, they're not serious notes. but And suddenly I I wrote that line down and the next thing I knew I was writing out a scene by hand and I never write by hand and I ended up almost filling up a yellow legal tablet with what amounted to the first chapter and I thought well this has got to be garbage uh, and I, anyway I can't I can't go out of this out of the book I'm writing and do this so I put it aside and when I finished the face and went back to it I thought wow this it's essentially ready to go. Uh, I usually do 20 or 30 drafts a page, and this thing was handwritten out very close to finish. So that was the case where a character came to me, and I have no idea from where. And Jane was sort of the second of those. I knew she had a major loss in her life. I knew it was a husband. And I knew that she it, she was up against something of monumental proportions, but until I got into the book, I didn't really understand what it was. I think there's a lot of things that are wonderful about writing uh, as a, as a profession. It's much better than when I taught school or, or when I uh, worked in a grocery store or when I did anything else. It doesn't even compare. But one of the most perfect, beautiful things in it is those moments where things happen that you don't understand why, where the character takes over and the story starts moving and you think, am I in charge of this or is something else happening here? And sometimes that can get into this almost sense of ecstasy that you're in. And uh, that those are the things that those are the moments that are so wonderful when you're writing and makes it feel like not it never feels like drudgery to me. But there are some days you bash your head against the wall for an hour at a time. And with Jane Hawk, none of that happens. 
Well, that's good to hear. Uh, <laughs> don't want you bashing your <laughs> yeah. head there against the wall. Yeah, don't oh, it's a very head. hard head. Don't worry. Don't you know, worry. CTE. Okay. One of the things that I love about your work is um, genres don't define you. And authors just starting out are always sort of boxed into, well, what genre are you writing? You're writing romance, you're writing mystery, you're writing thriller, whatever. And you have been able to defy that. And I'm just wondering, how's that battle been for you? Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it hasn't been pretty. Let's just say that. Uh, it it goes back almost to the beginning. I uh, I've struggled with it. Now I'm I'm somewhere where now they seem to really be understanding what I'm doing. I've got good publishers, good editor. Uh, I've been with this editor quite a while. Uh, and but early on, it was very difficult. When I, the first thing I started doing that I had real problems with was I. Tend to, I tend to think if there's a little humor in the book, sometimes in my books, like Life Expectancy, there's a lot of humor. But if there's a little humor and it's going, I always think this humanizes the characters. But I can't tell you how many times I was told you can't have humor in a suspense novel because no one will find it suspenseful. And I said, but if you think the lead character has a sense of humor... And there's another reason I add humor, but this is one of them. I said, then you kind of identify with them better because we all deal right. with life with humor. And number two, uh, if you identify with him and you laugh with him, you're more afraid for the character. And it was an argument I had for the longest time, I would say a decade before I started or I stopped getting that argument. And I remember when I... Uh, I'll focus this so we don't go on forever on the topic, but way back when with Putnam, the, uh, I delivered a book, and they liked it, but they didn't think it was anywhere close to being a bestseller. Uh, and I, it was a book called Whispers, and it did become a bestseller in paper. And then the moment that happened, I was expected to write the same book every time. And I knew even then I couldn't do that. And... So it ended up in being this endless struggle. And when I delivered uh, Watchers, everybody loved that book. So it went out, and the very next – it had a dog as one of the central characters. And no sooner had uh, delivered that, and it was published, and I'm working on something, and delivered it. And the first reaction was, there isn't a dog. Uh, no, and there isn't going to be a dog. But we need a dog in every book. No, we don't need a dog in every book. And the next book was a book called Lightning, and it was a cross-genre book. It was a suspense novel. It had an element of time travel, and it was a really epic love story. And One my, of my favorite books of yours. No, well, it wasn't the publisher's favorite. She, she was a very <laughs> smart lady, and she was very successful. But she published writers who wrote the same book over and over. And she said to me, I can't publish this book. You're finally moving into some areas of bestseller, and if I publish this book, it'll destroy your career. And I said, why? And she said, because the lead character is a child for the first quarter of the book. That makes it a young adult novel. And I said, gee, Oliver Twist is a child for most of the novel, and that's not a young adult novel. Yeah. 
but you don't reason that way in these circumstances. And then said, well, but it also mixes all these genres. We have to put it on the shelf for seven years. And after you've had seven years of success, we can risk publishing it. And I wondered, where did these laws of publishing come from? Why isn't it five years or nine? Why seven years? And I got insistent that the book be published, and we thought about it for four or five months. And finally she said, I will publish it, but it will fail. Well, it was the first book I had that went as high as number three on the Times. And the very next book went to number one. And, Midnight, right? Yeah. yeah. And when Midnight went to number one, my publisher, who, who thought Midnight was a strange bag of tricks, she said, um, call me up. As you know, you know, 10 days ahead or so, you're going to be on the bestseller list. said, well, I've got great news. You're going to be number one on the Times. But, and before I could do anything, whoop or say anything, she said, don't get excited. I want you to understand this will never happen for you again. It's a fluke. And I said, what? I said, you don't like the... Yeah, it was a big fluke, but she said, you don't write books that can be number one. Well, we had five number ones together, and every single time she told me, this is a fluke. It'll never happen again, which is why finally, one of the reasons I finally had a change of publishing. So, yes, mixing genres and everything just so confused people all the way through the career. And I kept saying, I just think people can cope with it. I just, and they have. But I say to young writers, what, mo- what you've got to have is a sense of what you're doing and just not back away from it because you're going to get more naysayers than otherwise. And they'll be good people. It's not that they're evil and trying to destroy you, but they're used to doing things in a certain way. And when you come off and you're not doing it that way, then it doesn't fit the pattern they're used to, and it's a, it can be a real struggle. Fortunately, I'm at the point where I only had to hit 70 to get there, but uh, where they're willing to say, okay, we understand now what you're doing, and uh, and I'm in a good place with the people I work with. Well, and that's important where you are. Yeah, and that's important. I mean, because if you don't have that, I mean, it can kind of squelch some creativity, and it's not really what you really want to write. And I think the kind of reader senses that in the times when an author is like that. I I like to think they do, but then I look at some things that sell, and I think, well, well what those yeah, sell is that. the same thing over and over. <laughs> Uh, so I don't know, but uh, all I can say is it has worked for me. So, you know, I'm grateful every day. I, I'm so amazed when when Jurda and I, when Jurda first made an offer to me, said I'll support you for five years because I know you want to make writing full time, and if you can't make it in five, you'll never make it. Uh, I thought, oh well, that's a great thing, but what do, what do we decide is making it? And we both agreed. 25000 a year as a regular income would be making it. So that was our goal. We never imagined it would go where it went, but it didn't go where it went easily. It took a long time. Now, I have this question here, and I've always wanted to ask you is, did you ever sit down and say, you know what, with this book, I just want to scare the hell out of people, mm-hmm. and that's my goal. <laughs> Do you have a book that you did that with? 
Oh, I would say intensity was one of those. Uh, yeah, I okay. knew intensity that that story, and I still get mail about that. Uh, there's some people who can't get through it because they have to take a break, and uh, which I never understood as a reader. I could get through anything, but if it was yeah. you know something I wanted them to read, uh, but yeah, that one. And then at some point, my publisher said you haven't written anything scary enough lately. And we were at the brink of breaking up. And I got kind of ticked off because, look, I'm writing books that are succeeding. And why are you asking me to go back and write? So I wrote The Taking that way. And uh, it's it's pretty scary. So it, it's kind of fun to scare people. But it, I don't want to be the one-trick pony. I just don't want to do sure. that. Uh, I want to do other things. In the same book, you can be scary. You can. One thing I've always said is, whatever else is in my novel, suspense is there, because it's the one aspect of our lives that never changes. We don't know what's happening to us tomorrow, an hour from now, next week. We live in a state of suspense, but we deny it. And when you have a novel without suspense in it, I don't think you're actually writing realistically. So suspense will always be in the novel, but I don't really want to be told this has to be there or that has to be there. And I certainly have written about dogs since, but I don't put a dog in every novel. So. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, I love whatever you write. And um, when I discovered you, I learned, and this was before you republished a lot of your books with the pseudonyms that you did. I'm curious why the pseudonyms and when you were doing the pseudonyms, why were you doing that? It was. It had to do with this writing in different genres. I had publishers at that time who, and in those days, it was really genres were frozen. Uh, some people said I was the first to do a cross, start doing cross genre, and I think that's probably true, because you you wrote in one thing and that was it. And when I would deliver a book that wasn't the same. Then the publisher would say, you can't publish this under your name. You have to do it under a pen name. So I would create a pen name, and I'd write that kind of book under the pen name, but then I'd write something different. And they would say, well, or my agent would do it too. You have to do that under a different name. And after books under my own name got to be successful and on the bestseller list, I said, let's just bring these books back and see if it really does matter to the public. Are they going to write me and say, well, you jerk, you just ripped me off by publishing this book that isn't in the genre I thought you write in. I've never had a letter like that. Those books came back out. They did very well. And it, I have always argued when this comes up that what readers buy isn't so much the genre. It's the voice of the writer they like. And that voice is going to be there no matter what genre it's in. Now, I do understand that people who want to read a detective story don't want a flying saucer stand up in the middle of it. But sometimes they would like it if it was done right. And that's kind of the challenge to me. Let's see if we can bring them along into something different. But I have a not to bore you with the same subject, but back in the day when all this was when I, the bestsellers were just beginning to happen in paperback, and then a little bit at the bottom of the hardcover list, I, I was buying back all the books I had written that were different or under pen names or stuff, 
and I was paying as much as I had been paid. Uh, so, in other words, it seemed like I was get, paying for these books. I was making nothing because it was if I was paid twenty thousand, I paid twenty thousand, get it back. And I had this series of books, Lee Nichols, that were over at Pocket Books, and I said to my agent, "We have to get those back because I think these are all going to be worth more than they are now." And she said, "Well, I'll go and see if they'll sell them back." And they came back and said. No, we won't sell them back. They got real snarky and said, you know, these books are worthless. He can have them for nothing. And it was like a slap in the face. And I said, well, that's really cool. Uh, I don't mind being insulted if I don't have to buy them back. So we got them back, and we it was a year and a half later. The first one was published, which was Servants of Twilight, and it went to number one on the paperback list and stayed there for six weeks and sold two million copies. And I thought, that is one of the greatest gifts I was ever given. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, I mean, you've seen, of course, the how the publishing has gone for, for many, many years, and, and kind of the big thing that that, I, that we see now is you see a lot of authors, big authors, kind of writing together or big-name authors writing with, like, a lesser-known author, and they're putting out a lot of books. But that's something that you've never done. Now, have you ever been approached to do that, or is that just something that just does not interest you whatsoever? I, I actually did try it once, and <laughs> oh. it, was, I, it was with the Frankenstein series, and it, it was supposed to be co-written, and I would do an outline, and my co-writers would do... Uh, the first draft, and I would do whatever drafts after that, at least a second, probably a third. And I had two co-writers and uh, on the first two. I gave them outlines. They delivered perfectly acceptable scripts. And what I discovered is I can't collaborate. I, in each case, there was nothing wrong with what the writer delivered. But I'd look at the opening and i think, well, why did he open it that way? And I would start to write a new scene. And the next thing I knew, I was writing an entire new novel. So those writers had their names on the first printings of those books. But I had to say to them, look, it isn't even the, anything close to the book you wrote. And I'll just buy you out. And I learned a lesson. I just can't do it. I, it's not that you know, I think I'm better than anyone else. It's just that your imagination goes in a different route. And I do care about what my name is on. And if I'm going to do draft number two, and I, my imagination goes somewhere draft number one by another writer didn't go, I can't force it to go there. And it was a very expensive lesson. But in the end, I loved writing the five Frankenstein books. Uh, a lot of people haven't read them because they think they're like other Frankenstein stuff. And they aren't. They're just very different. And... Uh, uh, so I learned the lesson, and I'll never do it again. Well, wasn't there a, a TV show involved with that as well? There, <laughs> this was, yeah. It started out as a, some people came to me. This is this is where you know there's a devil. Uh, when when somebody from Hollywood comes and says, "We love what you do. We want to create a sh TV show with you." And uh, what do you want to do? And it sounds so wonderful because they're not saying we want to buy this book and screw it up or this or that, but we want to do whatever you want to do. And they wanted me to reimagine Dracula, and I said, "Dracula is being reimagined about every other week. I don't think 
I want to write yet another vampire thing, but nobody ever goes back to visit Frankenstein. So, so we talked about it, and I wrote a script on spec. It was a one-hour script, and uh, it was sold. Uh, it was sold to USA Network uh, as a series, and uh, and some really strange things happened. Uh, the agency that represented me at that time. They had a miscommunication, and the the agent with it was bringing in this young director who actually wasn't right for it. And the head of the agency showed it to Martin Scorsese. And Marty was looking for his first fictional thing to do in TV as a director. And he said, I want to do this. And I thought, wow, we got the 800-pound gorilla here. This is going to fly by. So then they said, well, if Martin Scorsese is going to direct this, well, then, of course, there was a problem. They had already sort of promised it to this director. And Marty, in my experience, is just such a decent guy that he said, oh, look, if if there's been a mistake and somebody else was approached separately and he's a young director, I'm not going to tramp on his toes, but I would like to be producer on it, and I'll be in every meeting. And he was, usually always by phone, but he was there, and he was directing gangs in New York at the time. Uh, but no matter when the meeting was, he was in on it. And uh, and then they said, we want you to expand that hour script into two hours. And I said, that's fine, because they wanted to open it with a two-hour episode. So I worked on the two-hour episode. I got it all done, and I discovered they had, behind my back, hired another writer who was writing behind me, which basically is against the Guild rules. And uh, it ended up that I had to get my name off it because it turned into this misogynistic, just misanthropic mess, and everything in it was awful. I have a a beautiful Japanese writing box in my office. And if you open it up, it's a big box. It's all gilded and everything. And it's from the Meiji period. And if you open up, the only thing in the box is a letter from Marty. And I eventually had to get my name off the series. And I might be, at least I've been told, the first writer who got ever got all his credits removed. I got my producer credit removed. I got my writing credit removed. I got um, every, but they told me at the time that you you can't get created by credit removed. The guild doesn't allow it to be removed because they don't want somebody who genuinely created something being forced out of their interest in it. And my attorney discovered there was this thing called forced, uh, something more enforced, something extreme forced removal of credit. And you had to prove they had taken your philosophical view of life and turned it 180 degrees upside down. And they had definitely done that. So I had to go through the, writing this about it was almost as long as the script I wrote, pointing out where they had changed things that destroyed everything I was trying to do. And I ended up getting the created by credit off, which drove USA nuts because they were going to use that to sell it overseas. And, uh, I ended up losing money in the whole thing. It cost me more to get my name off than I ever made out of it. But I got this beautiful letter from Marty afterward. He he said, if I was directing it, I would have walked out there with your script and I wouldn't have changed a word. And when they, I heard they were changing it, I kept saying, but you're not taking this scene out, are you? Or you're not taking that scene out, are you? And he said, everything of value was being removed. 
so I always think very fondly of him. He was just very decent about the whole thing. But uh, that's what happened to Frankenstein. And uh, I'm, I, they did a two-hour thing, and it tanked. And it had, it needed to tank. It was so awful. Uh, and that's why I don't do a lot of screenwriting anymore. That's one of many reasons. <laughs> Um, well, I'm curious. Um, is there a positive Hollywood story with one of your works that you're happy with? Well, there's a partly positive. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, well, the Intensity miniseries worked just fine. I worked with a guy named Tom Patricia, who was in uh, uh, forgetting his boss's name at that time. It was Mandalay, Peter Goober, and uh, that went almost painlessly. The the one I thought was going to be fabulous was Odd Thomas with Steve Somers. Steve Somers is the most decent, nicest guy I have ever met in Hollywood, uh, and very bright. And he came and he wanted to do this, and we spent two hours on the phone because it was a property I didn't want to give over very easily. And he so was so smart about it, and I said, "Okay, I'll give you the option." And he wrote this absolutely brilliant screenplay. I couldn't find one word to change. And believe me, that had never happened before. And we went and did this dog and pony show together and raised money from foreign distributors. And he went away to film it and he got Anton Yelkin and he had to convince me Anton Yelkin was perfect to play odd because I thought not my vision of odd. And I saw one day of dailies and said, oh, my God, you're absolutely right. This guy is brilliant. Unfortunately, he died so young. Uh, but uh, but Steve was just ideal to work with. And then halfway through the picture, and I won't go into how this happened because I don't want to be sued, but there was no more budget. Uh, and there was an attempt to close the picture down. And Steve is such a decent guy that there came a point where he had 150 some people in Santa Fe filming this picture. They're halfway through. He asked the entire crew and cast if they would stay there at their own expense until he could come back here and see if he could get enough money to move the picture forward. And every single one of them stayed there for a month at their own expense. Now, you tell me who, how many people in Hollywood would you trust enough to do that with? Uh, and he finished the picture, but he had to finish it at a diminished budget. And it, I still thought it was quite good, uh, but it was sad. Then, because of all the legal things, it never got real major distribution. And uh, it's, it's just that was closest to my best experience in Hollywood. But I do like the people at Anonymous Content and Paramount right now, and I'm thinking the Jane Hawk thing might go somewhere really good. So we'll see. Oh, that's good. That's Fingers good. crossed. Well, I thought Phantoms was a really good movie, so I, I thought that was really cool. <laughs> that, well, that I worked with Bob Weinstein. Uh, yeah. Never stripped nude in front of me. That was... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other, this is the other Weinstein. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always kind of Bob was a, is a screamer, and he he's not nice to people, but he's got a great sense of humor, and uh, uh, so many people are afraid of him; they don't get that part of it. And he's not stupid, but uh, we had uh, uh, it was a troubled production in many ways, but it ended up with a decent cast, and yeah. it came close. It was just that. that I won't want to say where the problem was so much. It had to do with 
differences between what I anticipate as a writer and what the director thought was important, and that often happens. I just mm-hmm. didn't think it moved tightly enough, and it, if somebody had to cross a room to a spooky door, it took them 40 seconds to get there. And, you know, 10 is okay, but 40 seconds, no. But it had Leif Schreiber, and it had uh, Joanna yeah. Going, and it had Rose all McGowan. these good people. Rose McGowan, yeah. yeah. So it. Good cast. Oh, and Peter O'Toole. Uh, yeah, Peter, Peter O'Toole, that's right. Yeah. Wow. So, um, one of our editors on the magazine, she is a lady from Roswell, New Mexico, and her name is Amy. <laughs> she says that you guys have corresponded uh, over the years. She didn't know if you would remember her or not. She goes, oh, yeah. she, her name is Amy from Roswell, New Mexico, and I guess when her dog passed away, you sent her a condolence letter, and you had. Uh, so you you had been she's an editor in our that's suspense magazine and she yeah. and she works with us. Yeah, it's well. First of all, I get a lot of fan mail and I can't answer all of it personally. Right. We do a snail mail newsletter we send out, but I do seem to manage to get somewhere between two to four thousand uh, letters a year. I get to answer, and some of them are with a paragraph, some are at greater length. And anyone who loses a dog. And writes, and they do write to me because of the book I wrote about my dog Trixie, and uh, it's it tends to move people, especially if they get to the end. I write about losing a dog, and anybody who goes through that and writes me, I'm going to write them back uh, and uh, at considerable length about the suffering you go through with that because it's one of the worst things in life. But um, uh, and so yeah, I remember her absolutely, and at I think she sent me this picture of the library in Roswell that around the roof it has all these giant authors' names, and right there was mine between, I think, Steinbeck and somebody else. And I said, oh, that's a good town and a good library. It must be the aliens there that are doing it. (laughs) Well, she had a question for you she would like to know. She goes, what what was your – or what has been your strangest – fan experience like at a book signing do you have every author was like like you would have to have a story like that just an odd fan experience well i have many many of them uh i have a a really touching one i have uh uh, i've had security problems for about 20 some years with death threats that are absolutely very real and it has to do with certain thing books i've written one of them a book called one door away from heaven and that's when I started getting death threats from professors at a particular university on their letterheads, which I always thought was stupid. If you're going to write death threats, don't send it to me on your letterhead. Uh, and I started uh, having incidents at some things. And so I've always had security since at events. And uh, so some of those lead to pretty strange moments. Uh, uh, but I think my my favorite isn't so much strange. I wrote a book that was called One Door Away from Heaven, and the lead character—well, she's the central character. It's a—it's a—it's a multiple character cast. It's a very long novel, and uh, there's this 11-year-old girl, Leilani Klonk, who is—she has a deformed hand and a deformed leg with a brace on it, and. Her mother is a drug addict. Her father is a sociopath who's intending to kill her. And uh, I won't go into the whole story because it's very complex. But uh, uh, 
I was at a signing for that book, and it was about it was back in the day when the signings were like two thousand people, and you'd start at five at night and go on to one in the morning. And right in the middle of this, or toward two thirds of the way, these mother and father came up with this girl, who was probably twelve or something like that, and she brought the book in, and she they'd bought it a few days before, and she had read it wanted me to sign it, wanted a picture taken. And I signed it, but I didn't realize until I stood up to take a picture with her that this girl had a deformed hand and a leg in a brace. And I went, oh, my God. Because my first thought was, what was in this book that might have offended her? Uh, but it turned out the mother came back at the end of the signing and said to me, she's always been so conscious of her deformities that she hides them. She always keeps the deformed hand where you can't see it, under a sweater, behind her back. And that's been the big thing. And said she read this book, and now she doesn't hide her hand anymore. And I thought that was the most wonderful. It's what every writer hopes to do, is change somebody's life for the positive in some small way. And and here this was. And uh, and it. Uh, it was deeply moving uh, and not strange so much, but it is kind of strange, isn't it, that you write this character and one shows up uh, who is very similar. Uh, it's. Uh, I just hope some of the sociopathic killers don't show up. Uh, well, I hope not either. <laughs> um, w- one of the things that um, I've noticed with your writing more recently is weather plays such a prominent role in your stories, and I'm wondering why. It's it's not only weather. It's description of architecture. It's this, this, that. I've always done it. I've moved slowly more and more to it. Uh, it it's because there, ever since Hemingway, uh, everybody wants to write minimalist, or a lot of people do, and Hemingway was a genius. If you read Hemingway, it's minimalist, but there's subtext. And I'm sorry, but a lot of people who imitate that style have no subtext, and it doesn't resonate. It doesn't have that depth. And I have written minimalist sometimes, but there are so many. The English language is so beautiful, and there are so many tools you have as a writer that I think if you if you don't use them, you're just giving up so many things that you could achieve with it. Um, and so I have this rule for myself. If I'm going to give a weather description to you, it has to do with three things. Um, and there's like five or six things, but it has to do with three of them. It almost always has to set mood for the scene. It always has to be described from the point of view of that character. So it sets the mood of that character for the reader. Uh, it it has to deal, usually it has to deal with some subtle way or other emphasizing the theme of the book. Uh, if it does all those things, it is just as justified in being in there as any character background detail. And sometimes, uh, well, often, I find if I had started writing a book minimalist and I hadn't done this, I would have been up to the proverbial shit creek. Um, and a perfect example is Whispering Room. There is a scene toward the end of Whispering Room that Jane has to go after this billionaire, and she has to go. He's living in a building where he's got a security floor 
above and below him, and she has to get through the one below him. And there's something in that security room that is so daunting that it's scary as hell. And I didn't know what it was until I was about 50 pages away. And all of a sudden, I had this idea. I don't want to give it away, but if you've read the book, you know what it is. It's cool. And, and I said to myself, oh, my God, this is jumping the shark. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's going too far. But the reason it didn't go too far is I sat and brooded about it, and I said, okay, if you write this scene at the just at the high style that like a weather description will be written in or some other moment in the book will be written in and you write this whole thing at that high level it'll work because the language will make it work and i think that's what happened i think it turned out to work that way and everybody in my publishing life goes whoa that was an amazing sequence and nobody said hey you jumped the shark so if I had started it minimalist, it amazing. If I, but see, if I'd have started minimalist, I could not have done that scene. It wouldn't have been in sync with the book, and there would have been no other way to write it that it would have been re- felt realistic, so, or at least for me, it wouldn't have. Well, I got to tell you, I think that is an absolutely perfect place to probably say thank you so much for coming on. I mean, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you tonight, and. To end it right there with um, that great kind of scene looking into uh, the Whispering Room, which is out right now. It's the second book in the Jane Hawk series. So, Dean, we want to thank you so much for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure. Well, you ever want to do it again? There wasn't a dumb question in the whole podcast, so that's rare. Beautiful. (laughs) That's great. When when did book three come out? Uh, Early May. I think it's May 8th, and I I just finished number four. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Looking forward to Well, that. again, we want to thank you again so much. It was fabulous to be able to talk about so many different subjects and hit on so many, you know, kind of eras in your uh in your writing and now leading right up here to the whispering room and your latest adventure. So, thank you so much and we will talk with you soon. Okay. You guys take care. All right. Have bye-bye. a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you too. Bye. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is the best-selling author, Dean Kuntz. And, of course, you can um, visit him, and you can just go to deankuntz.com for all the information on all of his books, everything he has going on, Um, of course, including his latest one, The Whispering Room, book two in the Jane Hawk series, and Get Silent Corner, which uh, is book one and is out in paperback right now. So, wow, Jeff. They're both great. Wow. Right? Um, well, if I had a bucket list, <laughs> it's off. Did you just throw oh, up in God. the bucket, or you get across it off the bucket? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just saying. Like, oh my, I've been a great. fan of his forever, and I'm just so thrilled. It was awesome. And he's, well, I mean, he's off. I tweeted so. out, I tweeted out during the show, and I said, "Greatest suspense radio interview right now with Dean Koontz going on." That's what I said. I would have to agree. 10, about ten minutes ago. Good. Yeah. I mean, I know Jeffrey Deaver was always one of my top three, but man, this was this was incredible. Oh man, I'm such a huge fan. So um, thank you again, Dean, for doing this. And uh, yeah, thank you so can't much. Can't wait Dean. to read and Crooked guy, Staircase, hey, which is the thank, third book. Thank all of you. I mean, you know, we do this because you know all of you like to listen, and we were great to be able to bring Dean to you um, live, talking about his latest book on our last show here of 2017. 
So that's even great. I mean, that's just like perfect right there. Put the cherry right on top. Yeah, and uh, well, I, to everybody, have a wonderful holiday and yeah. uh, look forward and, hey, to being you know back what, in though? the new year. But and we're going to come yep. back in the new year, and you know what we're going to talk about, don't you? What are we going to talk about first thing in January? I have no idea. Star Wars. Oh, of course. Star Wars would have run December 15th. I have my 15th. ticket, so I'm good. So then we come back right after the new year. It'll be like three weeks out. We would have had a tight chance to like digest it, a chance <laughs> to kind of sink our teeth into it, to kind of go back and watch the first one and see how the second one kind of came in. Do all those things, and then we can just nerd it on out right there and we'll talk about Star Wars for a good fucking three minutes. Right? <laughs> there you go. But you're going. You already got your tickets. I haven't got my tickets Oh, yet. yeah, I'm going, I'm going gonna, on the 14th, yeah. Well, yeah, Ryan's going to go. Um, we're just trying to figure out if it's going to be the 16th or the 17th whenever she's off. We're going to go on that Saturday or Sunday whenever she's off work. Cool. Yeah, All right. Well, yeah. I look we want to. Well, we want to go. Are that. you going 3D? I'm. We're going to go 3D. Uh, yeah. Total 3D. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. Yep. So hey, and uh, 2018 is going to be a pretty special year, right? I mean, is this uh, is your book getting published on next year? Uh, no, we're we're talking 2019. Uh, just oh, signed 2019. the contract, folks. So yes. Um, but it's all signed. Yep. All good. And now, what's the title? The Galileo Disclosure. The Galileo Disclosure. And so, do you know spring, yeah. summer, or you just know sometime in 19? Uh, they're telling me summer. Okay. Is the book completely well, done? When, when I know full pub date, I'll uh, let everybody know. So yeah, it's completely excited. done? All the edits, everything's done, finished? Uh, still working on those. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I'm so excited. Um, I hope people like it. We'll see. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's cool. All right, then. I, I followed well, uh, Dean's rule about uh, writing what I want to write as opposed to doing the whole genre in the box thing. So I'm thrilled. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing. See, and, and I'm just going to say something, and I'm, gonna, I'm glad you're going to say So I'm just going to kind of end with this, is that when you pick up certain authors' books that kind of write a series with the same character, I understand people's you know, uh, draw to them because they're going to spend their 25 bucks and they want to know what they're going to get. It's like with music, you know, if, if your favorite band like Rush or Zeppelin or whoever, and then all of a sudden they put out that weird album, you're like, whoa, what is this? You're like, no, that's not what you sound like. And then everyone gets all upset. But then 10 years later, those songs become classics. So it's like, you know, they, they have the drive. But when you pick up Dean Koontz, no matter what era, whatever book you were picking up, it was always something different. You you didn't. I thought that surprise element was what made him great, because it was like Stephen King. I mean, him and Stephen King are like to me on the same keel. Stephen King is more name recognition because a lot more of his books became movies and stuff like that. But as far as the right. writing and the books, they are they are they are they are one A and one B, like right there next to each other, because they all wrote whatever they wanted to write. I mean, you know, like when that publisher said, oh, you can't voice. have a little boy. He's like, you know, oh, you can't have a little boy. That's a, that's a YA. What the hell was The Shining? Danny wasn't a fucking teenager. <laughs> right. And that was, yeah, that was yeah, um, Lightning, and no one thought that was a YA book. Right. And, God, I'd love to see Lightning made into a movie. But, um, yeah. no, his voice is so great. I, 
he could write a phone book, and I would love it just because he I mean, does have such a great book. I mean, I thought the Frankenstein series, I want to go back and actually read it, reread it again. I, I thought that was great. But one of the ones that I thought that was like really underrated with him was Dragon Tears. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Dragon Tears, I always thought, was an underrated book. Um, and I was going to ask him about it, but, of course, you know, he didn't really have time. But my first – what was your first Dean Koontz book, and how did you – so we're in the store with this. We'll talk about this. What was your, what was your first Dean Koontz book, and how did you get it? Um, I was a page at the library, and I was shelving a book called Phantoms, and it was going on the new bookshelf. And I said, oh, this looks interesting. So I read the flap and went, God, this sounds really interesting. So I checked it out and read it, and next thing I know, I'm using our resources at the library to find other books by this guy. Because it's like, oh, my God, this is so good. And I was actually going to use bookstores and getting paperbacks of those books he wrote under pseudonyms. Because I was so just enthralled and in love with his writing. And he hasn't disappointed me all these years later. So Phantoms, Phantoms was your first book. Phantoms. Yes. So yeah, and I think my me, next one was uh, one of his Lay Nichols ones. Oh, okay. So yeah. you, so you, like, like so I said, what I was the year track, that you found it, everything. though? Because when was Phantoms? That was like early 80s, right? Uh, 83, yeah. Okay, so how long, so it was out in 83. So he hadn't had that many books out that time under his name. Right. So, and you found which one was it before, after that? Um, I went back and uh, found some of his late nickels, uh, Eyes of Darkness and Key to Midnight. I found them in paperback. Oh, paper okay, yeah, 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 okay. And then I discovered, you know, like Aaron Wolf and Kara Dwyer, David Axton. Oh, those um, are the, yeah, those are the <laughs> pseudonym ones. And then, uh, oh, yeah, and uh, he wrote The Fun House, it was Owen West, I mean, I was just having, like, oh, my God, this is really Dean Coots. This is great. You know, now, of course, you can find all that information on the web. But when I was doing it, it was it was research. It was harder. Yeah, you had <laughs> to, to research. Trying to track this it. down. So with yeah. me, it was actually I saw the movie Phantoms, and it said it was by a novel by this guy named Dean Coons. And so I went to the bookstore, and the book that would just come out was The Bad Place. So that's what I got. Ah, Okay. So I got the bad place. Yeah. So that was in '91. Mm-hmm. I think when the bad place came out, and then that's the first book I got. And then I went back, and I got Watchers, and I remember reading Dark Fall, and um, I never read Phantoms because I saw the movie and I was like, yeah, I want to read other stuff. So and then Shattered was a really good one for me. So yeah. And then Shannon, of yeah. course, she's read everything and she loves Autonomous. She thinks Autonomous is probably one of her top three favorite characters ever written. Um, I gotta say that was the first novel that I was so emotionally drawn into it that I hated Dean and I loved Dean and cried. Yeah. Uh, the first Todd Thomas is just oh my god, so good. Um, he wrote a kids novel too, or a kids book. And uh, I remember trying very hard to find that, and I finally was able to find one a few years ago uh, called oh. Odkins. Oh, yeah. And that was, yeah, that was it's on his, cute, it's on his, too. It's on his website. I'm looking at it right now on his website because I'm looking at his bibliography. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I can, so I can remember these names of these books because I'm sitting there going, my God, I don't – the city. I don't remember the city. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, God damn it. I mean, yeah, I mean, no, that, that so was a books. good one. 
Yeah. I know that in the book Breathless, we're in the paperback as far as our review is. I like that. That was that was one of our first ones for him. Yeah, I'm, I've I've read every single book. Uh, looking at the bibliography myself, I've read them all. Yeah. So. All right, man. Well, I'll tell you what, everybody. It's been fabulous. Thank you for the great year, Jeff. Let's have 2018 be a lot better than 2017, right? Holy shit. Uh, absolutely. That would be nice. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for listening. And uh, yep. have a wonderful So happy holidays to you and your family and everyone else out there. Happy holidays to you and everybody else. And thanks so much for uh, joining us here on Beyond the Cover. Jeff, always a pleasure, man. We'll talk later. All right. Thanks again. All right, keep reading, everybody. See you next year. All right.